chat today, Naomi. Oh, God. Candy can't open. Make it a mocked, oh wait, sparkling cranberry ginger beverage. From Trader Joe's. From Trader Joe's. Ooh. I don't like that. I like that. You're it like is. a ginger beer fiend. That's why you like it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh. That is very pleasant. Well, if you don't want to finish yours, I will. Yes, today we're sampling the sparkling cranberry ginger beverage from Trader Joe's. It is like ginger beer with a hint of cranberry juice. I'm a fan. I do like ginger beer. It definitely tastes like the holiday season. It definitely tastes like the holiday season. Naomi just doesn't like the holidays. No, I just don't appreciate a ginger beer because ginger beer, I don't know why. But anyways, anyways, my name's Naomi Guy. I'm Joel Guy. And you're listening to Why Will No One Date These Guys, a podcast about love, sex, and relationships among the youths. The The, youths. The youths. We do need to come up with a good phrase for like, the combination of younger millennials and Gen Z. I don't think anyone's like come up with an appropriate, like you're in the dating age, but not settled down term. Um, adult. Young adult. No, because I feel like most adults are of the age to settle down and they don't. So I don't know what would support that hypothesis. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, I, Every time that somebody says youth, I think of this one episode of New Girl and two of the characters have just gotten a new house and they're looking at the crime statistics because they didn't look at them until after they moved in and redid the entire house. And so somebody's breaking into their house. It turns out to be one of their friends, but they're both in their bedroom and one of them's screaming and he's like, are you the youths? The youths that the articles talk about. And so every single time that somebody says youth, I just... Think of that line in New Girl. That is fair. Well, speaking about the youth, Naomi, I wanted to talk today about Match.com Singles in America survey, the newest version of the annual study of American singles. Uh, This is the 11th time they've done this survey, so they have over a decade of information on dating trends. But before I get to that, I want to dig into how dating has changed over the past year and three quarters, what people thought would happen, and then get into some predictions for the future of dating post-COVID or whatever the world looks like, whether or not COVID goes away. Yeah, let's please talk about what our dating life looked like. Well, I'll start. It was really easy. No change. (laughs) An increase from zero to zero is no change. (laughs) Zero Um, to zero to one. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't recall if I was on dating apps at the beginning of 2020 or throughout 2020. Uh, Unfortunately, I was working very long hours at work because given that I have a somewhat essential job, I was not able to take any time off. Now, I don't want to make it sound as though I am envious of individuals who were laid off. Uh, Obviously, there were some very traumatic economic times for people as well as health scares. But yes, I think there were a large number of people in the United States who were not doing anything but stuck at home and had the opportunity to spend lots of time dating. And I was unable to take advantage of that. What Joel is trying to say is that he feels very blessed and lucky to still have a job and still be in good health. Let's talk about how my dating life has changed. Um, Now I see why you brought it up. I feel like it did just because like I got on dating apps like in 2020, like towards the end of 2020. You weren't on dating apps before? I was. I was never on dating apps until the end of 2020. Interesting. Because I was in a relationship and then I was like too much of a chicken to get on them because I was really scared. And then I just like pulled the trigger and did it. In fairness, like the idea for the podcast kind of emerged from all your horror stories from like 2020. I don't recall there being any like grotesque examples of the human condition before that time. So yeah, I just kept them from you. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is our COVID project. You know, some people model ships, some people sewed blankets. Somebody, uh, some people redid their like entire house. We're doing long winded therapy in the form of a podcast. Exactly. About the, about the youths. So yeah, you you would say that your big change was getting on dating apps? Yeah, I would say that. But like, I would also say that like, it's a lot harder to like find it was okay. So we live in Arizona, as most of you may know. So like, it was a lot easier to find places that were open for like, sit down meals. Because I feel like Arizona did like a mini lockdown, not like a full like full fledged. It was pretty brief. New York City lockdown. So like most restaurants were still open. But What I always try to do was before the vaccine, I tried to make sure that everyone that I was going on a date with had gotten tested and was negative before I went on a date with them. So I did not, in fact, get COVID from dating. 
I still, God, knock on wood, haven't gotten COVID yet. <laughs> what an accomplishment. Yeah, but now I just make sure they're vaccinated, double vaxxed, and now I guess triple vaxxed soon with the boosters being passed in Arizona. I don't know if that's everywhere, but Arizona, you can now access a booster if you're 18 and over. I think it's everywhere. Yeah, the FDA just had to approve the use of boosters. Well, and- you know how some, like, we got the vaccine earlier than, like, let's say California. Because the access to vaccines, like I did, because you were an essential worker, so you got yours in January, but I had to wait a while. And so I got access to a vaccine sooner than, let's just say, our family members in California. Okay. So I wanted to start with some of the predictions that people had kind of at the beginning of the pandemic back in the, the, the early months of 2020. It seems so long ago. So there was a Time article written by Lena Doctorman, April 11th of 2020, where she cites a couple of experts. So Dacker Keltner, a University of California sociologist who studies the impact of touch, worries about the long-term impact of social distancing on singles who live alone. He contends the fabric of society is held together by even the smallest physical contact. Touch is as important a social condition as anything, Keltner says. It reduces stress. It makes people trust one another. It allows for cooperation. When you look at people in solitary confinement suffering from touch deprivation, you see that people lose a sense that someone's got their back, that they're part of the community and connected to others. Worse still, loneliness can affect an individual's health. Studies have shown extreme loneliness is associated with the immune system increasing inflammation. Under normal circumstances, when you feel lonely, you run the risk of stressed, compromised health profile, Keltner says. Add that to the quarantine and that really elevates the severity. And then there's the obvious carnal problem. The New York Board of Health issued guidelines on sex in the time of coronavirus, encouraging New Yorkers to avoid hookups and gently suggesting substituting masturbation for intercourse. You are your safest sex partner, they said. The hilariously blatant government warning quickly went viral on social networks. But as the reality of abstinence is set in for New Yorkers, people are starting to wonder how their comfort with physical intimacy may forever be changed. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, and a key member of the White House's Coronavirus Task Force, has already said, I don't think we should ever shake hands again. Keltner adds that singles might fundamentally alter how they interact with strangers on first dates. Even once there's a cure for the coronavirus or the pandemic passes, an entire generation will think twice before hugging a stranger on a first, second, even third date. So I kind of get where they're coming from. I am fully vaccinated. I mean, I don't have my booster yet. I'll be getting that later today. But um, I do feel uncomfortable going out in public now without wearing a mask. Yeah. Uh, There are certain places where I consider it acceptable, other places not so much. When my work was finally like, hey, if you're sitting in an office, it's okay to take off your mask around other people. I didn't do that for several weeks. And I was thinking, I don't know if I'm ever going to go back, but it got more normalized pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I do have to wonder, you know, how common mask wearing is going to be even after things have somewhat leveled out. I don't know what that looks like, though. I just don't like the policy where it's you like have the option of wearing a mask if you're fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. It's a, what do you call that? Not a trust system. It's a... Well, it's good faith. It's good faith. It's a good faith system. And I don't like that because I know a lot of people have taken advantage of that. And they're just like, I don't want to get vaccinated. I don't want to wear a mask. So they just... Mm-hmm. You don't obviously like ask everyone coming into your store, like, can I like see your vaccination card in order for you to enter without a mask. So like, it's stupid. I feel like I was at AJ's yesterday and like AJ, AJ's fine foods and the grocery store. I'm making this very blatant and where I was because not everywhere has AJ's. If you want to stalk Naomi, her normal schedule goes as follows. (laughs) Monday morning, 8 a.m. I'm usually out of bed at 8 a.m. on a Monday. Um, Back to your (laughs) anecdote. So, I was there and it was me and one other person wearing a mask. Nobody else was wearing a mask. Even the workers weren't wearing masks. Well, and you I eat enough fine awkward. foods, you become immune to all disease. Yeah. And I was like, even the person that, because I was picking up a cake and even the person that was boxing my cake, I felt uncomfortable with him because he was breathing on my cake that I was buying. Right. And this is, I think, kind of why I think mask wearing is going to become a lot more popular I know in a lot of Asian countries, given their experiences with like bird flu, a lot of people, a significant percentage of the population wear masks going out in public for other reasons. But like there are reasons to wear masks other than coronavirus, like seasonal flu cases went down significantly in the last year and seasonal flu kills tens of thousands of people in the United States every year. Um, Everybody go get their flu shot when you get your booster or before then. But, But I guess to my point, like there's plenty of diseases in our society that 
will no longer be as much of a concern if people continue wearing masks. And I see a lot of benefits in doing that. And now I'm kind of thinking, you know, do I really want food service workers, you know, coughing and sneezing on top of my food? It's not that like food service workers are like nasty, gross people. It's that we all kind of know and recognize deep down that food service workers don't actually get sick time off. Like regardless of what the law says, either due to economic circumstance or because of shitty work conditions, exactly. like they definitely go in and work sick. Yeah. Uh, I won't comment on whether or not I've done that, but the grim reality is like a decent chunk of people working food service have worked sick and probably have like spread their disease to somebody else. But you also have to think about like we didn't realize how gross everyday activities that we did were until we had to hyper analyze our daily activities and cut down the things that we were doing, washing our, like making sure that we were washing our hands on a regular basis, Mm -hmm. making sure that we were putting on masks and keeping our distance. Like we didn't realize how many surfaces you touched on a daily basis that other people had touched that like wasn't washed in between uses until the pandemic. I feel like a lot of people really hyper started to hyperanalyze their routines and realize right. like what was truly just gross about our everyday living. Of course. Okay, so there were all these concerns about, you know, how people would be affected by coronavirus. But the good news is dating apps took up some of the slack. So there's a CNBC article written by McKinsey Siglos on Monday, May 25th of 2020. She says, before the pandemic, online dating fatigue was taking hold. Dating app downloads for the top 15 apps was shrinking globally, and research showed that all the swiping just made people lonelier. The pandemic, at least by some metrics, has been great for business. Dating.com reported that global online dating was up 82% during early March, for example. As states across the country began rolling out stay-at-home orders in March 2020, Bumble saw a 26% increase in the number of messages sent on its platform, a company spokesperson told CNBC. Tinder saw a length of conversations rise by 10 to 30%, and elite dating app Inner Circle saw messages rise 116% over the same time period. Hinge rolled out Date From Home, a feature that lets users launch a video chat if both people agree to a call. The Plenty of Fish app launched Live, exclamation point, which enables users to live stream with potential matches. And the league now hosts League Live, a video speed dating platform. Bumble was ahead of the curve compared to some of its rivals, offering in-app video calls since 2019, a feature that laid waste by many users until now. Video chatting over Bumble rose 93% in the week after Trump declared a national emergency, the company said. The average time in these calls is about 30 minutes right now, which is a really good introductory period to get to know someone, said Pretty Pretty Joshy, Bumble's VP of strategy. Per a May 2021 article in The Conversation, dating apps roll out other features which may also be permanent moving forward. Dating apps also tried to foster community building and address feelings of isolation or fear. Apps like Grindr, Lex, Bumble, Her, and Coffee Meets Bagel hosted online events like concerts, speed dating, and dating advice sessions. On social media, dating app companies promoted self-care. Plenty of Fish made an Instagram post stating, It's important to isolate without feeling isolated, and we're here to help you through it. Bumble said that, if you're just okay, that's okay. And Coffee Meets Bagel told users in Instagram story, it's okay to do less when you're coping with more. These posts reflect the message of support that circulated widely across social media from companies and people during the first few months of the pandemic. Tinder made its passport feature free, which allowed users to geolocate themselves anywhere in the world, encouraging them to connect with people globally, all while staying at home. Finally, company blogs and social media accounts provided ideas for virtual dates, from virtual museum tours to ordering Uber Eats for each other and sharing a meal over FaceTime. They also offered advice ranging from what to wear to how to adjust the lighting for a video date. Naomi, did you use any of these features? Did you continue meeting people in person? Okay, so I, when you were mentioning Bumble and having like video chats on Bumble, Hinge started doing that too. I was like, I mainly was on Bumble and Hinge when I was on dating apps. I would say that I used those a couple of times just for safety measures if I wasn't necessarily all the way comfortable with that person enough to like go on a date with them yet. But they were kind of like, I don't know if other women have like had this experience, but when you get on a dating app and you're like talking to a person, they're like, okay, when are we going to hang out? And it's like so quick, like you're three messages in and they're like, let's hang out. And I'm just like, I don't feel comfortable doing that. So I did use those features a couple of times. But the thing is that on Hinge, you can start, you can like play this game where you like are asking the other person, like, leading questions in order to start conversations and get to know each other better. So that one guy that I was telling you about that was like explicitly describing how he was not consensually having sex with his ex-girlfriend. You remember this story. 
I'm pretty sure I told it on the podcast. So he went into great detail and I was listening because I'm an active listener. I ask questions during the story. I make sure that I'm nodding and giving them the cues that I am still listening. He was going through these as I was telling him about myself. He was going through these prompts and the other person can see what the person is doing on their screen when it comes to these prompts. So he was acting like he was listening, but he acted like I didn't know that he was going through these prompts and was totally distracted. So I was like, one, I don't like the way that you are holding a conversation. And two, you just gross me out based off of the story that you just told me. So it was a double whammy no. I see. It wasn't true love after all. So back to the CNBC article. Even as video chatting picks up and engagement numbers rise, some single CNBC spoke to are skeptical about how long they can keep up a virtual relationship. That kind of sentiment is taking a toll on plenty of dating apps. Just take Match Group, owner of popular apps like Tinder, Hinge, and Plenty of Fish. Even though usage and engagement numbers have been on the rise since the start of the outbreak, in April the company started to see a slight decline in subscriber growth, and its average revenue per user was flat. The trend wasn't all that surprising, given that there's less of an incentive to pay for features or join an app in the first place when you can't migrate your digital connection into the real world. Waning interest in paid dating apps also likely has a lot to do with the fact that more than one in five Americans lost their jobs and filed for unemployment benefits, with experts now warning the country is heading for a recession in 2020 and with unemployment numbers growing by the day, subscriptions to dating apps may be the one place where people cut costs. And what I'm worried about is about people's propensity to spend, says Egal Aronian, an analyst at Wedbush Securities. The longer you're stuck at home, the less likely you're going to pay over time. People are downgrading plans. They're buying a la carte features a little less frequently. That's putting a bit of pressure on subscriber growth and on revenue or average revenue per user growth. So the use of these dating apps went up initially. People were using video chat a lot more. But I think what was seen quite commonly is it's hard to take it out of that stage. I also saw a lot of conversations online about how boundaries could be enforced more easily through apps and how a lot of people saw that as a perk through video chatting. Mm -hmm. So New York Times, The Atlantic, The Conversation, The Guardian all had, you know, articles that dealt with this phenomenon. Some people mentioned that people they were talking to took advantage of video calls to immediately switch to topics like sex, which is, I guess, the one in 100 theory, the idea that if you talk to 100 people in a bar and be like, hey, you want to bang? One of them invariably will say yes. So you have to, you know, play the odds. But others, you know, treated it like Omegle and tried flashing their junk. But even then, others played it like super safe. And I think that's interesting because it gives people an opportunity to, you know, quickly screen whether or not the people they're talking to are weird perverts. Yeah. And it forces people who might be more likely to engage with these topics to be a little more respectful at the beginning. Well, that's what I liked about these like platforms having the option to video chat with these people is you don't have to give them any more personal information than what you've put on your profile. You don't have to give mm. them your last name or anything. And you don't have to give them your phone number. You can just FaceTime with them via the app. So if they're giving off creepy vibes, you can just block them right away and you don't have to deal with blocking their number, blocking their Instagram, blocking their other social medias. Yeah. And then they also, at that point, usually a lot of people put their first and last name on their social media. So mm-hmm. you then you have to deal with the, oh, fuck, like if they look me up, what are they going to find type thing. Yeah. But I think to that point, the fact that, you know, women can just cancel calls and block guys, it makes it a lot easier to date. Yeah. Rather than, you know, you are talking to them, you make plans to meet up, you give that person their your number so it's easier to find them when you're meeting at that location, you have a really bad date, you decide you don't want to talk to them anymore, you either ghost them or send them a text and then they start harassing you through that number, right? Like yeah. it's much easier if everything's completely concentrated on the dating app itself to weed out people and not have them try to follow you afterwards. I was talking to, sorry, last point about this. I was talking to RJ yesterday about dating apps and the difference between dating in LA versus dating here because he's used dating apps in both states. And he said that he feels as if he, the more he uses dating apps, the more he realizes that women are the product and i was like yep just like society right and you know that's why bars for instance often don't have cover charges for women the more women they have on the app you know the more popular they're going to be the the more people are going to want to use it and it's also why oh what is that um Ashley Madison, the Ashley Madison app. It turns out that when there's a lot of people looking to cheat, for whatever reason, the gender ratio skews very, very, very male. And so when they were looking at the Ashley Madison leaks, it was discovered that it was like 1% of the users were actually women. And and the the rest were bots. The majority of women were bots. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was fun. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. So The Guardian had a September 2021 piece talking about rapid romances during COVID. Some people... 
I guess, due to the excitement and the the insecurity and the unknown future, met and moved in super quickly, like in the space of a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, but few of those relationships tended to work out. So the question was, what happened when a vaccine was being pushed and people began seeing dating in person as an option again? Well, The Guardian had an article on April 30th, 2021. In a recent survey of 1,000 single women from NERCS, a telehealth platform, many reported the same dilemma. While 58% said they hope to date and have sex more than they did before the pandemic, 44% worry that they're out of practice with dating and sex, and 25% are still worried they'll catch COVID-19. And realistically, many people are indeed out of practice. According to the survey, 35% didn't date or meet new partners at all over the past year, 7% dated but didn't have sex, and 28% did date and have sex, but less than they did pre-pandemic. As Harper Bazaar said in February of 2021, What psychotherapist Lucy Beresford has seen is how precious dates are. Prior to the pandemic, we knew we could hook up with 5 to 10 people a week if we really wanted to. Now, everything feels more precious. I notice that a lot of people are taking more time to have meaningful Zoom or WhatsApp chats to really put the time or effort in to know that if they're going to see this person, that they're not going to waste any time. People are saying I've got to take my choices seriously about who I spend my dates with. They're less willing to put up with people who are going to start ghosting or with any red flags. People are being much more picky, more judicious about their choices of whom to date. Conversely, some people are craving intimacy to such an extent that they're overlooking potential red flags or things that might previously have been deal breakers. When it comes to conversations around exclusivity, one friend posited that the question itself has changed. Are you seeing anyone else? Has morphed into, would you be seeing anyone else if you could? (laughs) Which is I don't like that. <laughs> but it is a big distinction. You won't want to be in a relationship yeah. with someone because you can't meet other people. Yeah. You want to because they don't want to. When it comes to long-term impact, we can make educated guesses. If you look at similar scenarios of national crisis, what happened afterwards, asked neuroscientist Dr. Swart. Using World War I as a touchstone, what followed was the Roaring Twenties. This time around, she says, if I had to bet, I think it will be an age of promiscuity, of excess. There are so many cycles of war or poverty, followed by a bout of spending, socializing, eating, drinking, having sex. It's going to be the Roaring Twenties again. Ferris Ford partly agrees. I think there's going to be a real contrast. The pendulum will swing in both directions. There will be a lot more pregnancies, STIs, and short-lived marriages as people hurl themselves into a new sense of liberation. But I also believe that there will be some longer-lasting legacies in how we communicate and a better understanding what you you yourself are going to be looking for uh, and prepared to put up with. Like so many facets of this pandemic, dating amid COVID-19 has brought the best in some and the worst in others. It's far from easy, yet one thing remains the same. Dating has always required bravery and hope. So I do think that's interesting that they're talking about there being kind of like two outcomes where either people are going to be less picky or more picky. And I can sort of see that in some of the things like my friends are doing and, you know, the people they're meeting. Mm -hmm. Some, you know, are being very selective and looking for very specific attributes in people and others are, you know, just attempting to have the time of their lives. I feel like, yeah, I feel like a lot of people, it just depended on how you spent the pandemic and what you got out of that. Because when you spend a lot of time alone, you like reflect on your personal relationships, Mm -hmm. you reflect on like what you want. So I feel like a lot of people either realized, okay, this is how I want to live my life after the pandemic. I want to live my life getting every STD known to man, or I want to like make sure that the next person that I'm with is the last person that I'm with. I didn't get into this because I felt the research was really boring, but there does appear to be a lot of epidemiology slash sociology research that indicates the more likely you are to catch a disease or be susceptible to disease, the less interested you are in dating and the pickier you are in choosing partners. Sexual partners or partners in general? It's difficult because like the research typically goes off of attractiveness. So it's like, look at all these photos, rank how attractive you think they are. There also was some like one-on-one like speed dating studies I saw, but in general, it does seem to be more inclined towards sexual, not so much towards long-term relationships. But I thought that was interesting. And I wonder how much of the divide that explains where people who feel, you know, I'm in good financial shape, I'm in good health, I'm fully vaccinated. They may be more willing to go out and see what they can get up to while people who are economically disadvantaged, maybe not fully vaccinated, maybe, you know, they have a pre-existing condition, they may be less inclined to go and do that. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much of this new phenomenon that can be explained. One last thing I wanted to talk about, what happened to people who are already in relationships at the start of the pandemic. Uh, BBC in November of 2020 had an article, people who've already, who already settled down are not immune to the pandemic's romance impact. 
At the University of Massachusetts Amherst, social psychologist Paula Pietramanco has been examining what makes some couples bond more, even more, despite the stresses of the crisis, while others are pushed apart. While socioeconomic factors do play a critical role, with couples more financially affected by the pandemic more likely to split up, Pietramanco says that a lot comes down to how couples approach problems that come their way. If they see themselves as a team, blaming the stress on the pandemic itself rather than something about their partner, they are most likely to emerge through the situation stronger, she says. Because the pandemic has been so life-changing for everyone, she predicts that the long-term prospects of many couples will be influenced by the patterns of behavior established during this period. Behaviors are likely to carry over after the pandemic, she says. Couples may end up getting better at communicating, better at supporting each other after this is over. But if they get into patterns of conflict, that can also spiral. For some, it could be enough of a shakeup that helps change their behavior for the better, while for others, it could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. I was unable to find any information about people who have broken up over the last year, but again, I do find that interesting where the pandemic could go in one of two ways for people already in relationships. Either it is a crisis and through that crisis they are tested and come out stronger or it's a crisis where they aren't successful. Now, in fairness, I did dig into a little of the research she's done already and it's not as simple as people having like mental support systems. Often the things that made people super anxious and more likely to get into conflict with their partner were things like financials, things like their mental health, things like the effect it had on their family, you know, whether or not they lost family members. So it's less, you know, were they mentally healthy and more of, did they see these things as something that they could or couldn't control and whether or not their partner was helping them work through those issues. You mentioned this in the last week that you feel like you need to go through a financial stress and like a family loss and things like that before Mm -hmm. you can be in a serious relationship with people. And I think that COVID really just tested those boundaries with a lot of couples. And I've heard a lot of stories of people that were like, oh, I because of COVID, we had to put off our wedding and then I found out he was cheating. So COVID Mm -hmm. actually saved me from having to get a really expensive divorce or something like that. So there's a lot of people that had happy endings. I guess that's not necessarily happy, but I guess they're happy because they didn't have to get married to an an a-hole. But still, it sucks when you lose, you know, three, six, 10 years of your life, you've just been engaged to somebody. But it's good that you're not spending the rest of your life with someone who you might become miserable. Exactly. And I think that, like you said, it's a good idea to go through these stressors before you get into a serious relationship with people and and you you do get married because it really just tests like how you're going to deal with hardships later on. Right. So that's what was happening during the pandemic and some of the predictions people had. So in this survey, Singles in America, they did talk about what their dating experiences were over the last year. And there were some clear takeaways about what you potentially as a single listener should do if you plan to continue dating in the near future. So the 2021 study is based on the attitudes and behaviors taken from a demographically representative sample of 5,000 U.S. singles between the ages of 18 to 98 Generations are defined as Gen Z, 18 to 24, Millennials, 25 to 40, Gen X, 41 to 56, and Boomers, 57 to 75. Singles in America remains the most comprehensive annual scientific survey of single Americans. Uh, They did this in conjunction with the Kinsey Institute, which is like the premier institute for sex health research in the United States. It's named after Albert or Alfred Kinsey who first started doing studies of the sexual behavior of people back in the 1930s or 40s and released what is considered to be like the first comprehensive study of like human sexual behavior in America. Um, so yeah, it's it's done with some, some, some credible organizations. One thing that I did find was interesting is when I dug into the data, they gave it the raw data answers, but they didn't do any of like, they didn't give enough information that you could like compare some of the different categories. One thing that I found was kind of interesting was that of the respondents identified as gay and 5.9% of the respondents identified as bisexual. So nearly 12% of this demographically representative sample of America identified as queer in some capacity. Only 12%? Only 12%? I mean, most estimates I've seen is gay people are between 5 and 10% of the population. I heard that Gen Z, it's closer to 50, are a part of the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. Oh, geez. We need to do an episode on yeah. this. I did not hear that. Yeah. That's why I was surprised because yeah. I just heard that estimate like pretty recently, like within the last like couple months. Yeah. I, I, I've always thought that 10% might be a low estimate that, you know, a lot of people 
are uncomfortable with, you know, identifying as queer yeah. or, you know, raised in such a way where they don't even realize that's a possibility. But yeah, mm-hmm. 50% is a pretty, pretty big increase. Okay. So the first thing is 83% of singles want emotional maturity and a partner over physical attractiveness. That's 78% of singles. Good things can come out of the worst circumstances and pandemics wait, are no wait, 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 wait. 83% or 78%? 83% of singles want emotional maturity and a partner over physical attractiveness. Then what was the 78 They were ranking what they considered to be most important and provided different numbers oh, for each. Oh, okay, So I got the it, most I got important it, I got thing it. they wanted in a partner And then 78% was physical was attraction. Was the second Okay, okay, got yeah. it, got it, got it, sorry. Good things can come out of the worst <laughs> circumstances, and pandemics are no exception. While many expected the pandemic to cause a deluge of post-traumatic stress, and rightfully so, the survey actually found the opposite within a single population, post-traumatic growth or what they like to call the grown-up glow-up. Because <laughs> that's exactly what happened. Men and women of all ages matured more, improved their health, and reset their sexual, romantic, and life priorities. To put it simply, singles are coming out of this pandemic better versions of themselves. Whether it was all that extra time alone or just a general desire to get off the couch, they made the most of 2021. 72% got better at prioritizing important things in their lives. 66% got better at caring for their mental health. More than 50% also made improvements when it came to their physical health, building stronger family relationships, unplugging from social media, and increasing their self-confidence. It's safe to assume, according to the survey, that singles are more eligible than ever. So, what do singles really want? So 84% want someone they can trust and confide in. 84% want someone they can communicate their wants and needs to. 83% want someone open-minded and accepting of differences. 84% want someone that can make them laugh. 83% want someone emotionally mature. 82% want someone comfortable with their sexuality, 80% want someone who has a life of their own, and 79% want someone confident and self-assured. I'm sorry, can we go back to the 18% of people that want someone who's not comfortable with their sexuality? So I did find that interesting because I think we would read that question interpreted as someone who's not constantly questioning their existence, you know, whether or not they identify as questioning straight, gay, bisexual, whatever. Vibing. Or alternatively, someone who has come out of the closet and has, you know, firmly decided on what they want. Yeah. But I could also imagine a more conservative individual reading that question and being like, well, comfortable with sexuality means they're not queer questioning, right? They know that they're a man and men like women. They know that they're a woman and women like men. Does that make sense? I could see that question being read in two ways. I also thought that open-minded could mean different things, 83% wanting someone open-minded, accepting of differences, because I think, again, for a lot of conservative people, open-minded means someone who's open to conservative ideas and not just like crazy progressive things that people think these I feel like these questions are like those SAT questions where everyone like qualifies them or like defines them in different ways. And so people get them wrong because like you don't pick the right answer, but you pick the answer that you think is correct. Mm -hmm. But I, I agree with you. I do think that's interesting. I think the question was worded like, you know, what are your top priorities? Select as many as apply. And, you know, 18% of people might have just been like, yeah, I've never run into a situation where I met someone who was not confident in their sexuality. That's not a priority for me. Because, like, to me, I, like, want to be dating someone that was like, okay, yeah, I know, like, I am this way and I, like, like these people. Mm -hmm. And that's just the way it is. I mean, like, I I guess it'd, it'd be cool to go on a journey of, like, adventurous journey full of opening up new doors for a person but like i wouldn't want to be involved with someone that was like questioning their sexuality i feel like that'd be really hard on a relationship potentially yeah i i'm sure there are plenty of relationships that have been strained if one partner decides to come out of the closet halfway through well i have been hearing a lot of stories like like i follow this woman on social media and she like halfway through the pandemic just like divorced her husband because she came out as bisexual and she was like i actually want to date women so she ended up like divorcing her husband and she came from like a really conservative family so she ended up like living in her van for a while because her parents like well she was originally in her car and then she moved to a van and now she's like in an apartment living her best life but Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Still, like it was a whole journey for her, so it was interesting. I've also you also heard those stories about like men and women coming out like 10, 20 years into their marriage and they're yeah. transgender or something, and then they their partner has to figure out: Do I want to be with this woman or do I want to be with this man or this this person that has a different gender than the original gender that I was married to? 
I mean, if we're doing an episode on like Gen Z and sexuality, I think it's also worth discussing how sexuality can change over time. Yeah. Because I've read a little bit of research. It's rare, but there's research that indicates that like people's sexual preferences can change over time. So there are people who identify most of their life as straight and then at some point decide to come out as gay. And it's unclear how that might happen, but it seems that they, you know, don't identify as bisexual and have no interest in, you know, continuing their heterosexual relationships. They want to, you know, go pursue gay relationships. And so that's interesting. Again, it's an example of how when we think about sexuality, it's difficult to fit into clear boxes. Even, you know, defining it as a spectrum is difficult because it's like a multidimensional spectrum where it's mm-hmm. like, I'm into men, I'm into women. And then did non, you know, gender identifying people, and then the intensity you're into all of this, it, it all plays a role. Yeah, yeah. That, the, the other example I've heard is there are a couple of cases where someone gets a traumatic head injury, and they come out and they suddenly identify as queer, right? So they well, were straight like, up until something happened yeah. to their brain. Well, you also need to think about like those people that have like a TBI, and then they come out and they they like know a different language or something. That they, I don't like, think that ever before. happens. Okay, that might be comas, but still, keep going, <laughs> keep going. Okay, so seventy two percent of Gen Z and sixty eight percent of millennials took up new hobbies during the pandemic. Sixty nine percent of Gen Z made strides in their career. Sixty nine percent of millennials got better at managing their finances, and sixty eight percent of millennials got better at managing their time. You mean, did you take up any hobbies in the new year? This podcast. Lots and lots of dates. Went on lots and lots of dates. I took up a podcast as a hobby. I do, I read a lot more books now. Nice. What else do I do? I think you're volunteering a little bit more. Yeah, but that was kind of just like, I just wanted to get more into like helping out. Well, I started volunteering a lot more in like mid-2020. And now that my like work schedule is more firmly set in stone, I don't have as many opportunities because the food bank I like to volunteer for, for whatever reason, is open Monday to Thursday, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. That doesn't make any sense because that's literally when people are working. Like, that's exactly my like, thought. And I've mentioned this and in. they're like, no, no, no. It's you know, for single families or whatever that's not working. And it's like, yeah, there's a lot of people who are working who still need food. That's yeah. my least. I don't run a food bank. What the heck? Yeah. So anyways, I think, you know, there is more opportunities to get involved in the community. And if anything, my desire to interact with other people might have been strengthened by not spending time with a large variety of people. What hobbies did you take up? Just told you. I was volunteering more. Did some reading. Okay. Uh, my garden died a lot. I did some construction projects around the house. Like I fixed up that bench in the back. You um, made candles. I made – oh, that's true. I made candles. That's what I was looking for. Okay. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate the prompt. You also made soap. Soap. I did make soap and candles. For our listeners at home, soap and candles are great. If you're a member of our Patreon, I, I know who you are, one listener. Mm. We'll make sure we get you some soap and candles as the end of the year. Thank you. Okay. So millennials and Gen Z people are also widening their horizons when it comes to relationships. 50% of young singles are open to having a long-distance relationship, which is about 20% more than singles overall. And while they're at it, Gen Z and millennials also are attracted to a wider range of people compared to Gen X and boomers. Today, only 11% of singles want to date casually, 62% of singles say they're more interested in finding a meaningful, committed relationship, and 51% of singles spent more time crafting a more thoughtful message on dating apps. Um, I didn't really know how to phrase this. I said less hey as a message and more poetry as a message. Uh, Time had an article on October 28th of this year that kind of goes into this. While the pandemic has encouraged some to pursue partnership in a more intentional way, it's also prompted others to more broadly consider what they want out of their relationships in their lives. Ellen Lamont, a professor of sociology at the Appalachian State University and the author of the 2020 book, The Mating Game, says that the pandemic has forced many people to more thoughtfully consider what they're really looking for in their dating. People got lonely and had this period of time where they reassessed their priorities and what they really wanted from relationships, suggesting that those who were single during the pandemic might be considering monogamy and partnership more seriously now than before after not having the option to date casually for a long period of time. So back to the survey, half of young singles had a video date before meeting in person, and one in four singles overall had one. And it's not just because they're looking at themselves. The survey indicated that video dates are a new step in today's courtship process, lying for an efficient and effective vibe check before flirting face-to-face. After all, 71% of singles say video chatting helped determine if they wanted to meet up in person, and 47% thinks it helps avoid a bad date. It's not just about deciding if they want to meet up, though. 63% of singles said they would be more comfortable on a first date if they had video chatted with the person beforehand. And to our surprise, older generations believe that the most... 
Gen X and boomers collectively, well, Gen X believe that 66% of the time and boomers 72% of the time. So they believe in the survey that video dates will live on long after this pandemic, given that all age groups now are interested in doing them and may have clear benefits such as the vibe check or the ability to immediately block gross people. I, you said like awful dates. Like I wouldn't consider any of my dates I've been on truly awful. I would say I've been on some bad dates, but like I've seen, I've heard stories about women that like they were on a date and like they're at a restaurant and the man asked them out to like dinner. They're like, Hey, like, um, let's go to this really fancy steakhouse. And like the meal is over like $300. And then Mm -hmm. the guy just like picks up and leaves. He's like, you're paying, right? Like what? Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, you've mentioned some of these. Yeah, and like like the the bill is over $300 and like the person didn't realize that they weren't at least going to be splitting the bill. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And this is why going out for food on the first date does seem kind of like a bad idea. Like get snacks, maybe get some, you know, I don't know. Get a drink and appetizers. Cream, coffee, yeah, something small sure. that isn't going to break the bank. Yeah, exactly. But it was like there was that one. There was one that I heard about this woman who received a voice message from the guy that she had just like been dropped off from. Mm-hmm. Like they went on a date and he was pulling away and um, she gets a voice message and it was meant for one of her like friends or one of his friends. And it meant like it was him talking about how awful he thought the date was. And, he, and then he tried to cover it up by saying like, oh, I was just messing around like me and the homeboys. Like, you know how we are. Like, we always joking around. You're so great. Like, I'd love to see you again. Like stuff like that. Like that is like a truly awful date. I think I've been on some bad ones. That one's truly bad. That doesn't sound great. No. So I think some of our listeners might be thinking, well, okay, people want video dates, but does it actually like lead to bonding? Well, 34% of singles believe you can fall in love over a video date, including more than half of Gen Z and millennials. And while it may not be the full-on fairy tale right away, 78% of singles have felt romantic chemistry during a video date, 83% of men and 72% of women, versus 51% overall last year, with young singles 80% feeling butterflies the most often. I don't know if that's too surprising, because I've definitely felt like an emotional romantic bond with people I just texted with. Like, I feel if you're bantering back and forth. How long does that take? Do you think? Mm, I don't know. Depends how creative messages. the poetry is. The poetry. Thank you, Naomi. <laughs> um, I, I think the biggest issue I find on dating apps is a large percentage of people, it seems, aren't taking it seriously. And when you <laughs> message them, no, I, I think. No, no, no. I have a story. Keep going. Yeah. Um, but when you message someone, you might be really interested in knowing more about them because they seem really interested and they are just not putting forward the same amount of Yeah, effort. yeah, And that's sure. frustrating. That's totally fine. Like, it's totally okay to be, like, dating casually online, but it's frustrating when, you know, a large percentage of the people you put time and energy into crafting messages you think engage with their profile, give them an opportunity to know more about you, are just, like, unreciprocated. Yeah. So you're, like... You provide, you know, an opening for them to talk about themselves. You're like, hey, that's a really cool, you know, wall of books behind you. You know, what's your favorite in that stack? And they give you like a one word answer. Oh, I don't read that much. Or I like Moby Dick. That was like, a bookstore oh, that I was in. What's your favorite part about like Moby yeah. Dick? And Moby Dick is like a really boring novel, but also a really interesting one where there's a lot of themes of like religion and sacrifice and man's pursuit of like unattainable goals and there's also like a guide to like whaling ships that teaches you all about the different functions of whaling ships in almost encyclopedia like form like if you really like that book that says a lot about your personality and you're like hey what's your favorite part about moby dick and they're like um whales are cute i guess whales are cute I right guess. like i'm not saying that's a real conversation i've had but it's very similar yeah. to conversations i've had where i've attempted to open someone up because you know having conversations is difficult unless you're giving the partner an opportunity to communicate as we discussed in our conversations episode crucial uh, conversations no no episode. no the other one that was super awkward i'm like here's how you talk pretty to people i don't remember which episode that was i thought that was in crucial conversation there was another book we did okay. it was more cringeworthy than crucial conversations which okay. i like more okay. but yeah like I, like I definitely feel you can get a spark of romantic chemistry through online messaging and i think the same would apply to videos if not more so what's your story Oh, crap. I totally. Oh, oh, you were like, oh, you said that not a lot of people are taking dating apps seriously. And towards the end of my time on dating apps, most recently, 
because you know how the vibes go. You get on dating apps for a couple weeks. You're like, ugh, I haven't really found anyone. Like, I'm kind of just over this and you delete it. It takes up too much time. So you just delete the apps, blah, blah, blah. I like got to the point where I was just like not taking it seriously at all. And I kind of like bullied this guy and never was talking to me again. And I was like, it was like, it was like really funny. He was a, he was a, he was a jackass. So like, I don't really care. But like, it was, he just, um, yeah, it like got to the point where I was like, he was like, why do I even text you every day or something? Like he was like, oh, buddy. And I was like, I don't know. Why do you? He's like, maybe I'm stupid. I was like, at least you're self-aware. And then he never spoke to me again. Oof. <laughs> um, it's not just news outlets talking about the COVID vaccine. Singles are prioritizing the vaccination significantly more than the average American. And we have the numbers to prove it. 73% of singles are vaccinated compared to 64% of the U.S. population at the time of the survey. Whether it's due to their more active lifestyles or not being tethered to the same social pressures as those with partners, the majority of singles aren't shy about getting their shots, and they hope their future dates feel the same way. 65% of singles would like their dating partners to be vaccinated. This increases even more for vaccinated singles, 80% of which want their partners to be vaccinated too. 58% of singles are unlikely to have sex with a vaccinated partner. That's 33% of young singles, 57% of Gen X, and 85% of boomers. Go off, boomers. 54% of singles are unlikely to consider an unvaccinated person for a romantic relationship. That's 24% of young singles, 52% of Gen X, and 84% of boomers. 53% of singles will not go on a second date with someone who is unvaccinated. 25% young, 50% Gen X, 82% boomers. And 48%, nearly half of singles, think people who are unvaccinated are selfish, while 44% of Gen X and 60% of boomers believe this. Now, I find this interesting because keep in mind, these are single boomers. So they are people who are not already settled down with a partner. And if you're settled down with a partner who doesn't believe in vaccination, it's probably going to be difficult getting vaccination by yourself or convincing them to get one. But we were talking about people who have higher risks of contracting diseases, being more cautious about partners. And I think that's reflected here where coronavirus, it impacts all age groups, but Certain age groups, especially older ones, are far more likely to, you know, have the worst effects of the disease or die from it. And you see that reflected in this data. I I thought that younger singles, based off of kind of their political beliefs, would be more interested in vaccination. But no, older boomers who are most likely to die or receive horrible health effects from COVID are the ones who are most concerned. I thought that was interesting. I think it makes sense. So another question that the survey asked was whether or not social justice is a new deal breaker. And they said maybe. 58% of singles think it's important that their dating partner supports BLM. That was 67% of Gen Z and 60% of millennials. 62% feel similarly about the Stop Asian Hate Movement, 68% of Gen Z and 64% of millennials. I thought it was interesting because BLM can mean different things to different people. Yeah. I think some people interpret that as... Yeah, we shouldn't murder black people. And some people are like, yes, black people should have equal rights in our society. And some people are like, hey, I've read the BLM manifesto and I think reparations are important. Right. And those obviously mean very, very different things. And you can occupy many different beliefs on the political spectrum while all thinking that you believe in BLM. I think that my personal perspective is if I see like a Black Lives Matter shirt or something like that, I'm like, okay, that person in my mind believes that all lives are equal. Um, That's how I interpret that. I almost am. Now I kind of want to see data on people who are in relationships and their beliefs for the same questions. Because given that Black Lives Matter is not very popular or as popular as this survey would indicate it is, the insinuation is that it's couples which oppose BLM the most or that there's a disproportionate number of couples that skew the total like population in the United States. And if enough of them don't like BLM, then the whole, you know, data is. I just know a lot of couples that don't even talk about this stuff. So that might be the issue too. That's interesting. But but I, I guess, again, what I'm thinking is, If you're in a relationship with someone long-term, it's probably difficult to rock the boat and come at them with, like, a completely different political spectrum, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Like, if if someone you know is, like, super conservative and you've been dating them for a while and, like, you have a lot of African-American friends who are going to BLM marches, it's going to be weird if you're like, hey, do you want to go to a, like, BLM protest with me? And they're probably going to say no and think weirdly of you because you brought it up. What if they just wake up woke one day? (laughs) <laughs> they get knocked on the head and wake yeah. up super woke. Yeah, I've heard that. I've I like actually was wearing because like I have a Black Lives Matter sweatshirt and I was wearing it one time that I was like Snapchatting this guy that I like met on a dating app and he's like, "What's on your sweatshirt?" And I like took a picture of it and I like instantly got blocked. Nice. 
Okay, so seven in ten singles say they're open to dating someone of a different race or ethnicity. That still seems pretty low. Yeah. When it comes to accepting others, most of them are not just talking a big game. 45% of singles have actually dated someone outside the race, and 46% have dated someone with different political beliefs. And we expect those numbers to keep climbing. After all, 7 in 10 singles say they're open to dating someone of a different race, a 22% increase compared to before the pandemic. That's the sad part. I don't like that. Oh, God. 48% of singles were open to dating someone. Oh, geez. And and I and I looked at the numbers and I want to say that this was skewed. The data was skewed of the, like the 5,000 people pretty heavily towards people under 45. They did have like 14, 92 year old singles who took the survey. So that was something. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd be really interested digging into why people are so uncomfortable dating someone of a different race. Is it personal beliefs? Is it how they think their family is going to react? Do they have stereotypes? I don't know. As for racial dating discrimination, uh, well, the survey had good news. 78% of single people of color did not feel they've been discriminated against in dating. In fact, the number one thing people have felt discriminated against is their weight, with one in five singles reporting that. Nearly 60% of single men says it's important that their partner supports the Me Too movement. Speaking of partners, they're looking for those too. Men, 42%, are more ready to find a long-term romantic relationship than women, 29%. There's always talk of women's biological clocks pressuring them to settle down. While men don't exactly face this challenge, they do feel more social pressure to find a relationship these days. 24% of men believe that versus 17% of women. Once they are dating, men feel an emotional connection faster than women. In fact, 53% of men can feel it by the second date compared to 38% of women. When it comes to connection, they didn't forget about the physical things. While men are often seen as more eager to enter the bedroom, 81% say they now find sex less important than they did pre-pandemic. Often it is assumed that women resume this role, but our study showed the opposite. For one, men will go the distance for love as they're more open than having a long-distance relationship with someone who lives three hours away than women, 38% versus 29%. And speaking of distance, men are more likely to believe they could fall in love over a video date, 41% versus 30% of women. They're also open to second chances. Men are willing to go on a second date with someone even if the first isn't exciting, 43% versus 31% of women. Any thoughts on any of that? I thought it was interesting that 60% of single men say it's important their partner supports the Me Too movement, especially because that's just surprising to me. Voting like, really surprising records, men are more likely to be conservative yeah. in this country. I do wonder if this kind of goes towards both, you know, misinterpreting what you know BLM stands for and you know having disagreements over that, but also the idea that men feel they have to kind of pretend to be woke on dating apps in order to get sufficient dates. I think it's like so strange because a lot of my friends have like talked to me about this. The fact that like most of my friends share a very similar like political beliefs to me. So like we'll talk about the fact that like I consider my like I qualify myself. There's not like a good way. I'm left leaning. Let's start with that. And I feel like a lot of like conservative men only look at like left-leaning women and only will match with left-leaning women it's like they're kryptonite or something i don't know Hmm. what the heck it is but like i have so many conservative men like and i feel like i make it pretty obvious that i'm left-leaning in my profile without necessarily saying that i'm left-leaning and it's like so weird i have okay like we we still haven't done our episode on like pornography yet Pornhub does really extensive stats each year where they publish like a comprehensive report discussing different trends that they've noticed. And that's really interesting data that's worth digging into. But one thing I recall seeing like year to year, the, so they, what they can do is there's certain like categories that are pretty common among legions, like, I don't know, lesbians or whatever. And so if you get rid of all the categories that are really popular among regions and look at the categories that are most popular disproportionately compared to other regions, you get some interesting data. And one good example is the Deep South, where even though interracial dating is much more taboo, yeah, African-American interracial porn is much more popular, disproportionately compared to the rest of the country. Are we talking about like, I'm sorry, well, obviously we'll talk about this later on, but are we talking about like BBC porn or are we talking We're about We're talking like- about typically white men and black women or white women and black men. Yes. So I wonder almost what you're talking about is like conservative men are attracted to the taboo where it's like, or 
oh god, oh god, is it? Yeah, men think we, that they can logic and reason a left leaning woman into like adopting their viewpoints. That might be it, oh, no. but I feel like the, like the taboo in sex is what like people find so like interesting because like sex in our society is already like somewhat taboo. Yeah. So like you add more taboo to it, and it becomes like the secrecy of it mm-hmm. um, becomes even like sexier to some people. And I think there's obviously going to be a difference between what you're attracted to and what you want to settle down with. Yeah. Like, you may want to settle down with a nice white Christian woman who's going to give you you know two. And half children and you know you live christian in girl naked. autumn <laughs> christian girl autumn but you may realize oh those women don't want to have sex before marriage disproportionately. Yeah. and women who i go out with that identify as left-leaning may be more willing to do kinky stuff in the bedroom right yeah so i, I do wonder if that's a bit at play god we need to dig into this i'm like so interested going back to these statistics the fact that more men are willing to settle down like quickly and that they like the statistics about them like feeling butterflies and things of that sort quicker than women and i wonder how much of that's like being sexually attracted versus romantically attracted yeah but i also wonder you know obviously there are stalkers of both sexes yeah but there's many more cases of male stalkers yeah than, than women stalkers and so I, I guess that might play a role where men feel an intense attachment to women much quicker than women feel an attachment to men, and thus it's more likely that they decide to follow them around. Good stuff. Let's move on to (laughs) Slutty Summer. Ooh. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, Hot Girl Summer never was. Uh, There were many jokes made about how eager men and women would be after so many months of social distancing. Yeah. The truth is sexual activity has actually become less important to singles. The past year and a half, they've learned how to invest in, quote, slow love versus, quote, fast sex. And it's been, dare we say, satisfying. Nearly half of all singles report that their ideal sexual relationship right now would be a committed, exclusive relationship. Even if they don't hold off until they're monogamous, two in three singles want to wait until after the third date to have sex. In comparison, 27% of singles want a friends with benefits or casual sexual relationship. This was discussed earlier, the idea there'd be the people who were really interested in having sex and like the two camps and the people who were more hesitant. But that doesn't mean they're actually going to slide in the sheets with anyone. Quite the opposite, because 78% of singles actually say they're picky when considering a partner for casual sex. Other information, women may have a reputation for faking orgasms, but they're not the only ones. Of the singles who are having sex, nearly half of both genders, 47%, faked an orgasm the past year. There were also less dick pics. While phone sex is fun for some, naked photos have declined. 34% of singles sent less nudes than prior to the pandemic. 36% of men versus 31% of women. While singles are generally invested in relationships and taking their time and getting to know the bedroom, the future of sex is still looking bright and satisfying. Half of singles say they've learned something new sexually since the pandemic. And in the topic of something new, one in five young singles are now more open to experimenting with sex toys and sharing sexual fantasies with their partners. I think we might have talked about this in one of our earlier episodes, but we hypothesized that people were getting together less, but the relationships would be on the whole more satisfying. Because people were being pickier and pairing with people who better matched their overall like interests and inclinations. And I wonder if that's reflected in the data here, right? People may be more picky when it comes to partners, but when they're getting together with partners, they're having better sexy times, better relationships overall. Food for thought. Two out of three singles say new spikes in COVID cases won't stop them from dating in person. Ooh, let's see how this new variant affects that. Uh, so as a result, the Match.com survey people decided to put together a playbook for helping date in person moving forward. So getting vaxxed is the top of the list. Two in three singles want their date to be vaccinated against COVID-19, 65%. A majority of singles are not likely to go on a first date with someone who is unvaccinated, 52%. And even more are not likely to have sex with them, 58%. I mentioned that Time article earlier. There's another thing that they brought up. Vaccination status help impacted results on dating apps. When OkCupid launched its I'm Vaccinated badge, the company reported that users who had said that on their profiles, that they were had been or were planning to be vaccinated, got 15% more likes and 14% more matches. Ooh. So it's not just people claiming this on a survey. This has real-world implications, yeah. singles. Second thing is opt for a call over a text because it's all about hearing someone's voice. of singles overall and 70% of young singles prefer a phone or audio chat prior to meeting someone for the first date. They also say you shouldn't skip a video date. 71% of singles said a video date helped determine if they wanted to meet up in person, and 63% said they would be more comfortable on a first date if they had video chatted with a person beforehand. 
Over half of singles have become more interested in exploring a wide array of potential romantic partners, so widening your net if you're looking. Lead with more than just looks, because now more than ever, men and women are looking for more than just a pretty face, because as we mentioned earlier, there's a drop in singles' preferences for physical attractiveness, while preference for traits that demonstrate emotional maturity increased. How do you think that would manifest? Take a photo of you like working on an Excel spreadsheet? <laughs> Maybe chopping some wood in your backyard? Uh, I don't know. Like, uh, what do you consider emotional maturity, Naomi? Um, I think that's really hard to portray. Like, because you can fake it, like in a oh, picture. Of course. Yeah. So I don't know. I'll have to think about that one. That's a good I, question. I do wonder if it might yield more use as something like OK Cupid. You know, Lauren and I were talking about this last week. Yeah. For these longer profiles, and I think the more details you can give, the harder it is to fake it. Yeah. You know, you may be able to do it for a date or two, but around date three, you're probably gonna have difficulty keeping your facts straight. Date three, you have to pull out the MLA it. formatted five paragraph essay. <laughs> That's Naomi's mark of emotional security. Okay. Also be open to wearing a mask. Uh, one in four singles reported that someone being against wearing masks is an instant turnoff. 28% overall, 41% boomers. And one in three women will not go on a first date with an anti-masker. Hold on to the hug, at least in the beginning. One in five singles say they have less desire to be touched right now. And 40% of women do not want to be greeted with a hug or a handshake. Pleased to make your acquaintance, ma'am. That's just weird. Uh, handshake. I don't like that. Maybe yeah. I go with fist bump at the end of a date. Fist bump. Yeah. Not even elbow tap? Nope. Just a fist bump. And then I hand sanitize. <laughs> right out while looking them in their eyes. Yeah, I'm just Power like- move. Uh, make sure you also follow the new three-date rule. Singles agree you need three dates with someone to know if you're compatible. After all, chemistry takes time to build. Don't rush to the bedroom. Two and three singles want to wait to have sex with a new partner until after three dates. Commit to commitment. 62% of singles became more interested in a meaningful, committed relationship since before the pandemic began, and stick to the safe date spots. So these are places people felt comfortable going on first dates. So eating at an outdoor restaurant, 40% felt comfortable. Walking around a park or a neighborhood, 39%. Having an outdoor picnic, 29%. And be conscious of transportation, 37% of singles don't want to go on a date that requires them to take the train, bus, or subway. So that is singles in America, Naomi. Anything surprising? Anything that stood out for you? I would say transportation. Also, like, you don't want to be in the same car as them. Potentially. I did see, you know, in some of the discussions about how COVID had impacted dating, some people said that they were having car dates where they, like, meet in a parking lot in, like, early 2020. Oh, like, I heard about these. Yeah. And then you, like, eat your food and you, like, talk really loudly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, what I was saying is, like, people that, like, like you have to pick someone up to go on the date. You know what I mean? Obviously yeah. that's more, you, we don't, you don't do that in like a bigger, like in a city setting like New York or San Francisco, but no, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was fun. If we you know, continue doing this podcast and haven't moved on to bigger and brighter things, like <laughs> model rockets or whatever by next year, I, I'd be interested in digging into the data in 2022 and see yeah. what they'd come up with. Cause I can imagine, you know, a lot of these trends are going to be steadfast yeah continue wanting people who wear masks the thing is that like this pandemic like life will never be the same after it so like you have to deal with obviously the huge amount of loss that a lot of people went through Mm -hmm. um you have to deal with the the ever-changing climate of mask wearing right especially in the state of arizona um i was at Nordstrom Rack a couple weeks ago and I was telling my professor about this. It said like there was a sign on the door that said like no matter what your vaccination status you can wear a mask. Nobody in there was wearing a mask. I was like probably the only one wearing a fucking mask. Yeah when I was in Europe there was a pretty clear requirement in most places that you had to present your vaccination card before you could eat indoors at a restaurant. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people were eating outside but you know some people really wanted to eat indoors and have romantic meals or whatever and it was pretty straightforward. You pull out your physical card or your digital card. Most people in Europe appear to have digital cards on your phone. The waiter does a cursory check. Waiter or waitress does a cursory check of the card, and then they you know bring you to your seats. And it's perfectly fine if you want to eat uh, with your mask off the entire time, and then the meal, you're just expected to put your mask on as you walk out of the restaurant. Yeah. Thing is, I don't know if that's the safest thing. I haven't seen a lot of the research on whether or not it's safe sitting in indoor dining due to you know how COVID can travel through the air. Yeah. I haven't seen any research indicating it's more likely to hurt you. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I probably feel a lot more comfortable eating outdoors these days. But I guess what I'm getting at is 
there's a simple way of implementing common sense checks about whether or not people have, you know, vaccination status. And it doesn't even have to be discriminatory for all the people who are like, this is creating second class citizens or whatever. First, I don't think that's a fair comparison. But second, it's you still have the option of eating at the restaurant. You just have to eat outside. Yeah. Some parts of the country, you may be a bit colder. Some part of the country, you may be a little bit warmer. But yeah. Like, you still have the opportunity or just take your food and eat it at home. Exactly. Sorry. That's, that's yeah. a grim reality. Yeah, no, I thought this was very interesting. Uh, I'm always a fan of big data sets where they, you know, ask a large variety of people their opinions on a large variety of things. I do appreciate uh, these statistics. They're very informative. Yeah, and we'll we'll stick a link to the raw data if you want to dig through it. There's a lot of information, some surprising things you might find in it that uh, are not immediately obvious. Well, thank you for bearing with us again for another episode of Why Will No One Date These Guys. Have a great week. I hope that you guys have a great start to your holiday season, whether that be Hanukkah. I think that starts this week. Currently, it is the end of November, so that's, I'm not just... Kwanzaa, Kwanzaa. Christmas, Candle Nights, Eve Day, uh, Life Day, if you're a big Star Wars fan, um, Tree Decoration Week, uh, (laughs) National Pie Day, all the celebrations... I hope everyone has a great week. Take care of yourself. Take care of people you love and uh, take care of everyone around you. Wear a mask, y'all. We have many thanks for the use of our theme music, which is the song Drop by Ketza. You can find more of their music online at ketza.uk. You can also find Date These Guys online on Twitter and Instagram at Date These Guys or visit our website at datetheseguys.org. If you have questions you'd like us to discuss in the podcast or marriage proposals for either of us, shoot us an email at datetheseguys at gmail.com. If you're looking to make an impact, this show recommends giving either time or money to Planned Parenthood, a nonprofit organization that provides reproductive health care in the United States and globally. Planned Parenthood clinics and affiliates provide birth control and long-acting reversible contraception, clinical breast examinations, cervical cancer screenings, pregnancy testing, prenatal care, testing and treatment for sexually transmitted infections, and abortions. Planned Parenthood also does great work for those who can't afford traditional medical services. Approximately four out of five of their clients have incomes at or below 150% of the federal poverty level. Both Joel and Naomi are monthly donors to Planned Parenthood. You could be too. The intro and outro music of Why Will No One Date These Guys is from the song Drop by the artist Ketza. It is licensed through Creative Commons, and we are deeply appreciative that they've allowed us to use it. 